Uh, one of the ways in which you can tell you're getting old is you get just a wash in nostalgia. And um, it was about, <clears throat> man, 23, 24 years ago when uh, we first started uh, offering a seminar at the summer conference training uh, in philosophy of ministry. Uh, and so to see what youth pastor training YLT has become is incredibly gratifying. Uh, so thanks for being here and being a part uh, of all of uh, these activities. Uh, and it's a joy to be here. I mean, I know uh, Michael's been all apologetic, but it's my pleasure uh, to be able to come and stand before you and take a look at God's Word. So if you brought a Bible, if you'd look with me in the Deuteronomy chapter 32, I want to look very briefly at the interestingly muted completion to a life of what is arguably one of the greatest Old Testament figures that we have in the life of Moses. And I want to draw just a couple of points and then do a little bit of a Bible study around uh, the Pentateuch to figure out exactly what it is that's going on with this guy. So here we go, verse 30, chapter 34 of Deuteronomy, chapter 1. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan and Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. We're used to saying that grass withers and flowers fall, but the Word of our God stands forever. My question for you this evening is to say that if you don't have the Bible's commentary on the life of Moses, um, you would be very tempted to think that his was a representation of a failed life. If you didn't have what you have here. You have this great leader indeed, but I want to submit to you that this is a miserable end. For somebody as massive as Moses is here at the end of his life. But in order to grasp that, we've got to do just a little bit of the highlights of this man's life. There's not many people throughout the entire Bible who had a more impressive pedigree or ministry than Moses. You have a man, first of all, who was raised in royalty. Uh, he was adopted out of a racial minority background. Uh, which it seems he recovered from, but he struggled with his family of origin, leading him to commit murder uh, against someone of his own kind and being cast out very quickly. He's a bit of a hothead, we find out, and in trying to hide the body and hide the incident, he gets run out into the wilderness. While he's out there into the uh, sort of uh, wilderness, he begins to work in a blue-collar job, doing peasant's work, uh, 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 shepherd's work while he's there. But while he's there, God calls him. This is where God ends up calling us, doesn't he? In the midst of us doing work that we feel like is menial, that's sort of outside the norm. And in the midst of that, God looks at him and says, through a burning bush, I've got a mission for you, Moses. I have something that I want you to be party to that is going to launch the largest, most advanced movement of my kingdom in the world 
promised first of all to Adam and Eve at their first sin, but developed through the family of Abraham, you're going to see to its greatest push. You're going to bring my people out of slavery and into a promised land. And you're going to be the one who brings them to a place flowing with milk and honey and all by presence. There's no grander vision for his life and a call that Moses could have gotten that was greater than that. Take your people into the promised land, Moses. Go with them. So the journey starts with these amazing, spectacular effects, <laughs> right? You, you have confrontations with the, the, the greatest world leader at that time. Uh, you, you've got plagues that rain down on them. You've got miracles and judgments and God's hardening of their hearts. And they all lead to this glorious departure from their Egyptian captors, in addition to which they see all of their captors drown before their very eyes in the Red Sea. So if that event wasn't enough, then they all lead them very soon afterwards, just weeks after, to a great mountain where Moses says, I'm going to go up and I'm going to meet with God. And while he gets up there, the entire mountain lights on fire. The Bible says there's, there's smoke and there's dark blackness and there's lightnings and thunderings every time God speaks. And Moses is there to meet with God. While he's there, among many other things, he asks to see God's glory. And God says, nobody can actually look at my face and live, but I will show you my backside. I'm not making that up. It's in the text. I and who knows what that means, right? But he goes and he sees God. And the, the, the experience of being with God in that place means that when he comes back down and everybody looks at him, his face is glowing. This is a person who saw and spoke with God, the text says in numerous places, like a man talks to a friend. Not only that, in a couple of occasions while he's up on that mountain, he, he mediates between God's wrath and the disobedience of the people. It's this very easy sort of juxtaposition about how Moses is becoming Jesus for his people. Lord, don't blot them out because then your name won't be glorified. Rather, blot me out of your book. He's willing to give himself up for that. And then, of course, then he comes back down and he gives his people the Ten Commandments. And then things get ugly. <laughs> because these people that he's been called to lead are awful. They drive him nuts. There's rebellion. There's complaining. There's confusion. There's outright disobedience. Over and over and over again. But he has these very interesting experiences after he leaves Sinai on his way into the Promised Land. One of which I want to focus on that happens in Exodus 17. Because the people begin to cry out and complain about the fact that they're thirsty. They don't have any water. And so God comes down and says, what I want you to do is I want you to sort of take your, your, your magic rod, okay, this stick that Moses carries around. Remember, turn the Nile into blood with it, part of the Red Sea with it. I want you to take that rod, Moses, and I, God, am going to stand in front of a rock. And then I want you to hit that rock. I want you to give it a good whack. And he does so, and all of a sudden, water comes back up. An amazing miracle. We're going to return to that scene in just a second. But he leads the people up from there to the very edge of paradise itself. So much so that they send spies in. Well, when they come back, the majority of them are too afraid to go launching in there, and they doubt that God's able to do it. And so God looks and says, you know what? Then this generation is not going to make it. You're not going in. If you can't believe me enough after everything that you've seen, you're not going to see it. So you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years 
until all of you die out and the next generation will follow in and get the promised land. But remember this. Think about that for a moment. Moses has to wander too. He's in the midst of the same judgment, which, I mean, really, how much that must have been like? I mean, how miserable to simply walk around with the people that you clearly do not like, that you've had enough of, you sacrifice them over and over again, and yet all they can seem to be is a burr in your saddle. Forty years. And somebody used to say, you know, I heard somebody say one time, there's nothing wrong with my church that a few good funerals won't fix. <laughs> I always get worried that I'm that guy. When is he going to die? In your 50s, you think about these things. That's what Moses lived with. There's nothing wrong with the people of God that a few funerals won't fix. We have to go the sooner when they die out. It's exactly the mode. But finally, at long last, they arrive. They're ready to go in. But lo and behold, there's another water shortage. This all happens in Numbers chapter 20. And so all of a sudden, as the people begin complaining again, you can hardly believe they're doing it again, God looks and leads them to a rock again. But this time, the instructions are different. Instead of going up and striking the rock, God says, Moses, now I want you to go and speak to the rock. But Moses is too far gone. It's too much. And so in his anger and in his wrath, he takes his rod again and he strikes it again. Twice he does it. Now water comes out, but now it's time for Moses to be judged. Okay, pause for a moment. You've heard his life. What do you think Moses deserves at that moment? If you were sitting and making, passing judgment over this man's life and what you think he deserves, how would, you, how would you level this against him? Because how you answer that question will show how you understand the passage that we have with us tonight. <laughs> Are you ready for this? No promised land. You don't get to go in. <laughs> this entire program, everything that started... Years ago, in front of a burning bush that I sent you on, this massive movement to go and do this incredible work to bring my kingdom in wonderful, powerful, amazing ways, it's not for you. It's going to be for somebody else. How does that sit with you? It's worth kind of stopping here. Because you think to yourself, for a seemingly mild offense, like, you know, sort of missing the, getting mixed up about the whole speaking to and striking thing, maybe... He doesn't get to finish his mission? He dies up on a mountain by himself? To a place where you can't even go and visit his grave? Hmm. So for years I've been listening to sermons on this idea. Wow, you know, what in the world happened with, with, with Moses? And I hear people say one of two things. On the one hand, some people say, well, this is really a great lesson in leadership. Because leaders, if you really want to be in charge, you understand that God kind of treats his leaders a little differently. He's harsher with them. He, he, he holds them to a different standard. That's sermon one. Or they go sermon two, which is more like, you know what? Don't you dare think that this God is predictable. He will throw you off. Sometimes he will flash in his wrath and he will do things that you don't understand at all. So behold the power and severity of your God. Now, here's the thing. I think both of those are actually legitimately true. Maybe. But I've come to believe that when we talk that way, that we, we kind of get to that point where we cast God in that light, that we sort of agree with that great quote by um, 
what was her name? St. Teresa of Avila, who said, Dear Lord, if this is how you treat your friends, no wonder that you have so few of them. Is that what the message of the passage is? So, I want to report to you tonight that I've come to believe that neither of those two explanations are valid. I don't like either of those explanations. <laughs> and I think part of it is because we don't really understand that until you see Moses' entire life in one glimpse, that you begin to understand what this means for us. What is the meaning of the death of Moses? And I wanted to do such a long introduction because I only have two points tonight. So that's what we're going to talk about. Two simple points. The first one is this. I want to submit to you this evening that Moses' punishment actually fits his crime. Okay, now bear with me, because you should be asking the question, be like, what? How is that possible? But here, we need to do a little Bible study with me, so bear with me here while we jump around some. Because God clearly states exactly what his crime is in Numbers chapter 20 and verse 12 when he says this, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me. He passes judgment. Here, at the end of Moses' journey, his belief fails him. That's what happens. How? Well, again, don't get fixated on this whole speaking and striking thing right now. But consider this. We know for a fact that this rock that the children of Israel kept drinking from was a very big deal to these people. Look, go back to Exodus chapter 17 and the first time at a, at a rock called Horeb, at a place called Horeb. Because what God says to him very carefully is, Behold, I am going to stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And then you shall strike the, strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. What is God doing? Yahweh is basically saying, I am going to associate myself with the rock. And that's the reason why I want you to strike it. Because at the, at the outset of their journey into the promised land, Yahweh stands in the place of his people and he endures a beating from his servant. Why would he do that? Well, later on the Apostle Paul saw the parallel, which I hope that you see, <laughs> between the rock and between Christ. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul goes on to say that, that, that the rock that, that the people sort of drank from was the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Okay? There's a direct association for what this rock is and who Jesus is. In other words, there was a spiritual significance that the people were supposed to draw from the imagery of God standing in front of the rock and Moses whacking him. Imagery. What it was supposed to be a figure of is Christ. In other words, what Yahweh is saying to his people is at the outset of this journey, you need to know that there is a shadow of someone who will ultimately come and bear the ultimate abuse. On himself, the punishment for your sin. So the shadow comes. But when you get to Numbers chapter 20, at the end of their wilderness wanderings, the command is different. No longer is there to be any striking. Rather, here you're supposed to speak to the rock at Meribah. Don't hit it again. Why? Well, follow the logic. If the rock is a type of Christ, like Paul says, then he can only be struck once. Why? Because his sacrifice is once for all. After that, he is to be spoken to. That's different. Why? Because his favor for his people is not fickle. It doesn't come in and out. We're not waiting over and over again to crucify Jesus to appease a moody deity. 
He's not crucified over and over again once. From then on, after he is struck, from then on since that rock is Christ, you speak to him. You speak to him the way you would a savior. But see, Moses, mm, he's too far gone. In the midst of what probably is an abject hatred of these people, he decides, you know what? We're going to exact another pound of flesh. We're going we're to show these people just how much they grieve God with their behavior. So he takes matters into his own hands. He's going to deal with these people, these rebels, in the human way. He's going to deal with them in a vindictive way. And so he lashes out at the rock again, hoping, well, that maybe this time the punishment will burden them into obedience. It will burden them into submission to Yahweh after they see what they've done. See where this is going? Moses is attempting to crucify the Lord of glory again. Something the writer of Hebrews says you can never do. It's not the way my relationship works with you, Moses. It's not going to happen. And so Moses' failure there at Meribah was a heinous sin. I think it is absolutely wrong to say that he got punished worse just because he was a leader. There's no partiality with God. Instead, we see what Moses stood up and did was he exemplified to the people the exact opposite of what God needed his people to see at that moment as they walk into the promised land. I am yours. I have secured for you a perfect salvation. And Moses fails at that moment. In the end, to put it in short, like it says in Numbers 20, he did not believe God. At the very end of his life, it's heartbreaking. Here you have a man who yearned to do great things for God, and he served the Lord courageously. This is a man who was the recipient of direct revelation of God, who was called his friend, who talked face to face with God like he talks to a friend that made him glow. No promised land for you. How do you wrestle with that? Moses failed. Moses did not finish the race. He finished poorly. You would look back and you would say to yourself, that guy blew it. But instead we do things like, oh, if only we had the faith of the people like Moses from the Old Testament. Oh, for the great heroes of the Old Testament of old. Guess what? There are no heroes in the Old Testament. Everybody gets dirt spilt on them. Everyone of Moses notwithstanding. Honestly, go back and read Deuteronomy 31, the chapter prior to the one that talks about his death in 32. See how grumpy he is at the end of his life. <laughs> the summary of that chapter is basically Moses saying, okay, look, when you get in the promised land, okay, obey the Lord. You know what he told you, but you know what? You're not going to do it. So while you're there, remember what it means to turn. <laughs> you know what's happened to him at the very end? Cynicism. That's what's wormed its way in. So here's my question. <laughs> People can't even visit the man's grave. I'm amazed at this story. So my question for you is this. Anybody feel like this? God called me to this great thing. I really do believe that God asked me to come and do something awesome, which is to bring the gospel and joy and peace to this group of youth group, wherever God has called me. I want to go do this thing. But my question for you is, are you about to give up? Is it the call of cynicism is it the anxiety that comes up whenever you get critiqued? Just a little bit. <laughs> but it's a thousand little cuts, right? In other words, have you continued to beat the rock hoping to get out of God what you want Him to give you? That's a better way of putting it. Because I really do feel like there's this inertia, and maybe it's because I'm 52. 
But there's this inertia in ministry that's pulling you towards cynicism. Because if you're not frustrated with the failures of the people around you, you're overwhelmed by the failures inside of you. Whether it's from within or whether it's from, heart, from without, there's, there's a temptation with age to sort of graduate into eye-rolling. Whatever. Whatever. Is that where we're going? You look at some of the older people in your church, you're like, when did it change? When did you turn? When did you sour? Of course, the answer is, as soon as I stopped believing God. Because here's the problem. When all of a sudden we lose what we're about in that sense of joy in ministry and we get cynical, you actually don't do your job very well. One of my favorite old stories uh, by Brian Chappell uh, is about uh, a door that he needed to get repaired in his office. And so he called a carpenter over to come and fix the door. And the carpenter determined that the door was a little too large for the frame that it was in. So he took it off the hinges while Brian Chappell continued to work and he pulled out a planer. You know, talking about the little planer that's got the little blade on it that you sort of run it along, something that's wooden, and it makes these like cool little wooden curly cues, right? Well, so Chapel's kind of watching him sort of do his thing, kind of back and forth, curly cue, curly cue. <laughs> and Chapel's kind of watching him sort of do his thing. Wow, that's going to go over right there. And he watches it, he kind of watches it a little bit, and he says to himself out loud, then he realized he said it out loud, he was like, <laughs> isn't that neat? To which the carpenter turns and looks at him and goes, not when you've been doing it for 30 years, it's not. So Chapel's like, sorry. <laughs> Just trying to make conversation. And then he goes on and puts the door back on. And what Chapel said after that was, he goes, the crazy thing about that story is I thought about a man who had been doing a job over and over and over and over again and got lost in cynicism. The thing that struck me after he left, the door still didn't work. He says, here's the reason why. Because the job you take no joy in is hard to do well. And for Moses, once that cynicism has locked its way inside of his heart, what does he have left? Have you stopped taking joy in the task that God has put before you? Have you grown tired? Well, if Moses is your friend, please don't romanticize his standing there overlooking into the promised land like, how sweet that must have been. Sweet? Hey, Moses, place out there, right there, you don't get any of it. How bitter must that have been in that moment for Moses? And then he dies, and he's buried in the stores. You can say some nice things about him. His eye was never dimmed. His vigor was never abated. But still, in his mind, he lost it all. So my first point is that I think Moses actually deserved what he got. Second one, this one's more brief. But that's not the last time you hear from Moses in the Bible now, is it? It's a big deal. Because <laughs> you really could be forgiven at this point for wondering, like, why, why did we come to worship tonight? It's a little depressing to talk about this. But here's the deal. It's not the last time we hear from him. Fast forward a couple thousand years to this mountain outside of Caesarea Philippi, and a young prophet takes his three closest pupils up to a mountain, and while he's there, he pulls back on whatever cloak is masking his pre-incarnate glory. And he pulls it back for a little bit and he begins to glow. You know, Peter will end up telling Mark that, that, that his clothes begin to glow whiter than anyone could ever bleach him. And all of a sudden, there's a cloud that comes down, right? And the cloud is not good news. When the cloud comes down in the Old Testament, it's fatal. 
And a voice starts speaking about his affection for a son. And the, the disciples start babbling nonsense. But all of a sudden, two people appear. First person that appears is Elijah. By the way, there's a parallel sermon on this exact same topic on Elijah. Elijah's got the same thing. Did anything really good happen to him after the victory at the prophets of Baal? Look, it's a week later when he's in a cave, suicidal. Dies without any real glory happening. And he's got to turn the rest of the, of the job over to Elisha. <laughs> he doesn't get to see anything of what he thought. And there he stands. But the second person is Moses. <laughs> Moses gets to stand there and he gets to look in the face of Jesus. And you know what they're talking about? The word there says they were talking about his departure. The word departure in Greek is the word exodon. The exodus. <laughs> they were talking about they were talking about Jesus exodus in other words they're talking about Jesus doing what Moses and Elijah had both been incapable of doing themselves of leading the people of God to their true home Ligon actually is the one who inspired this sermon because he preached a sermon on Elijah on the exact topic and in that sermon he says this he says you can know that when a voice whispers in your ear you ought to have everything that your heart desires you can be assured that that voice always speaks with a hiss from a forked tongue. But when you, listen to this, when you hear a voice say to you, do you see that treasure? Do you see that thing that you want more than anything else in the world? You can't have it. But you can have me instead. He says you can always be assured where that voice comes from because it sounds just like you, Lord. Look, here's the point. Moses thought he wanted the promised land, but he got the face of Jesus instead. Because the one who buried him up on that mountain, while he was alone, crushed, grumpy, empty, defeated, Jesus is worth infinitely more than anything he had ever taken from Moses. Infinitely more. And there he showed him his glory on another mountain, but this time he could look in his face and live. Because he viewed it with unveiled face. Look, in that place, Moses saw the one who himself would end his life alone, crushed, and abandoned, really before the only face that really matters, and he would survive it in his resurrection. Why? On Moses' behalf, and on Elijah's behalf, and on behalf of all of the awful people like you and me that were called to lead. It's not about the milk and honey. <laughs> not about the big group. It's not about seeing the success of that kid. It all has to terminate in seeing the face of Jesus. God is saying, Moses, do not trifle with me. I am enough for you. I am the only promised land worth having. I'm the only treasure that ultimately can never be taken from you. Moses, I am going to be your vision. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Look, Moses did not go into the promised land because the promised land is not about milk and honey. The promised land is a sign. It's a pointer. And no one's going to go see where Moses is buried because Moses isn't there. He's a type of Christ in that regard because Moses is there gazing into the face of his Savior Jesus. 
So my, I lost my dad a number of years ago, about six years ago, and there's, there's a lot that you do to work through that. Uh, praise the Lord for therapy. Um, but before my dad passed away, we were having some weird conversations in the latter years. I think he saw the progression of his lung disease he had and was fading in a lot of different ways. And I remember him kind of doing that sort of like, what did I learn in this life? And at one point he said, Les, he said, son, there's, 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 three, there's three phases to life. He said, you learn, you earn, he goes, and, and then you yearn. I thought to myself, okay, I, I got the learn part. Get yourself educated, got it. I get the earning, because I'm in the midst of that right now. Let's make a, can I make a living? Can I support a family? But I remember thinking, what do you mean yearn? And I feel like with every step <laughs> that you take towards what we're all going to face, and, and, and sometimes that death may not be sort of a physical death. For some people it is. Sometimes it's just the emotional death of looking at so much energy that you poured into an individual with zero feedback and no sense of thanks of ever coming to me and being like, thank you for what you meant in my life. Zero. That's a death. That's a funeral. What we find ourselves doing is yearning. But I do think that what the lesson of Moses is, is as the sort of mounting wall of regret kind of piles up on us, it's the message of Moses is saying, no, 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 no. His life did not end that way. It doesn't matter how he finished. He was going to see the face of Jesus. And it well may be that God led him through that so that he could surprise him with that. So here's my question. Is it possible that God has something in store on the other side of whatever trial he's got you in now? Or the ultimate trial that every one of us is going to face in our own eventual deaths? that could be so sweet and so wonderful that it would make, everything, it would make up for everything else that you've, you've struggled through up until this time? Is it possible? Do you believe God in that regard? In the Brothers Karamazov, there's a wonderful speech that uh, Alyosha speaks at the very end after he's been grappling with his own sense of, of wonder and truth. At the end of the book, he looks at his brother and he says, you know what? He says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all of the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts and comfort all resentments for the atonement of all of the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but also even to justify everything that's happened. What could he possibly have been talking about? I think Samuel Rutherford told us when he said, Oh Christ, he is the fountain the deep, sweet well of love and the streams on earth I've tasted, so much more deep I'll drink above because there to an ocean fullness his mercy doth expand and glory, glory dwells in Emmanuel's land. Do we believe him or not? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, by your grace, would you walk us into that because we're clouded with a thousand things. Our phone's been buzzing even while we're sitting here hearing your word and hearing about Moses. 
with a thousand different cares of worries that meet us back at home. We come here, Father, longing to know that even if we finish as poorly as Moses finished, that we have you waiting for us, that your grace saves even people who don't even finish very well because of the security of what you've done, that the rock has been struck, and it's only struck once. We're grateful for your punishment for Moses, as odd as that sounds, because it encourages us that you've already completed our salvation. Father, would you help us to finish well, that we would not lose our belief, and that we would look to see your face through every single trial that we have. Would you do that? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.